this is the Lightning Junkies Podcast with your host, Chaz. On this episode of the podcast, we have Lisa Nygut talking about Lightning Network Primitives. Before we go ahead and jump into the show, I did want to let our listeners know about our new support page, lightningjunkies.net forward slash support. On this page, you can find the various locations you can find and subscribe to the show, as well as different monetary ways you can support the show, including supporting Bitcoin and Bitcoin over Lightning on the MyBTC Pay server, as well as Strike, as well as other Lightning Network methods of donation or otherwise supporting the podcast. This is very important to me uh, because as of recently, I have someone helping me with the transcription and editing of each episode of the podcast. Because of this, my overall monthly costs for the podcast is around $500. If the podcast produces value in your life, please consider chipping in some Bitcoin or Bitcoin over Lightning or using any of the other supporting methods on the support page. I think I've talked long enough. Let's go ahead and jump into this episode. I would like to go ahead and welcome Lisa to the Lightning Junkies podcast. How are you doing, Lisa? I'm doing great, Chad. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I definitely saw you on Twitter. You really have this drive to get the Lightning Network primitives out there. We'll definitely get into all that, but let's go ahead and do the normal podcasty thing and let's go into your background. But before Bitcoin, what was your background like in that time? Before Bitcoin, I was an Android developer for a long time. I worked at Etsy for a few years on their Android app and then ended up working for a small startup doing some hardware Android programming. I worked at a startup that was shipping custom Android devices in New York for a bit. Then I dabbled in web RTC. I was at a video streaming startup for a bit in San Francisco and then stumbled into getting hired as a engineer at Square for their Bitcoin team basically work on their custodial Bitcoin wallet the pipeline that backs Square's cash app they have a whole Bitcoin feature to the Square cash app where you can buy and sell Bitcoin there's a whole pipeline and wallet that backs that I got hired to help out with that stuff I was working in this period of switching away from being an Android dev writing Android apps is really fun for the first couple but after a while I feel the problems that you're solving are all very similar this was sometime in early 2018 that was the lead up to getting into Bitcoin was doing other kinds of systems programming I wanted to do something different I had always really been interested in Bitcoin stuff but I didn't own any Bitcoin I read Andreas Antonopoulos his book, Mastering Bitcoin, and was like, oh, this is great. I just fell in love with the protocol as a technology. It's just so well put together. I feel it's rare to find systems that are incredibly well thought out. Bitcoin just struck me that it's complex, but the pieces all fit together nicely. You joined Square and that kind of launched your Bitcoin career. How did that end up going from there? I really wasn't at Square for that long. I ended up getting hired away by Blockstream to work on Lightning. How that came about was when I was reading Andreas's book about mastering Bitcoin, I noticed that there's a very small and unimportant problem in the block header for Bitcoin blocks in that the timestamp is only 32 bits. 
If it were a signed 32-bit integer, that means that it would roll over in 2038 when the Unix epoch rolls over. I'll give a little background because I think it's really interesting. In the year 2000, there was this problem with a lot of computer systems and the way that they had been written or architected to store information about dates is that there were only two digits. It would go all the way up to 99, but then it would roll over to zero at the year 2000 just because of the way that these counters were set up. Leading up to the year 2000, a bunch of computer programmers fixing all the software so that instead of keeping track of dates as two digits, you switch it to four. Since then, a lot of computers these days keep track of time in Unix epoch time. It starts January 1st, 1970, and you keep track of the number of seconds since January 1st, 1970. The timestamp is a big number. In computer architectures, the size of bits that you use to represent a number differ depending on how you as a programmer set up your program. You get to decide how big a number is going to be. The number of seconds since 1970, depending on the size of data storage that you put that in, rolls over in a lot of cases in the year 2038. It's basically another millennium year rollover problem. I was looking at the flag headers and I was like, oh, the way that this setup, it looks like it's going to roll over in 2038. That seems like it would be a problem if Bitcoin's around for that long, which I think most people hope that it is. I find that especially when you approach a new system, it's usually good to find a small project that gives you an angle from which to approach the bigger ecosystem. My question is, what would it take to change the block format for Bitcoin? So it's like, okay, well, we need to expand the number of bits that we use to record the date in the block header, for example. If you want to do that, then you have to get to know what BIPs are, because that involves writing a BIP, which is a Bitcoin improvement proposal. I was like, okay, what does the BIP process look like? So I started reading through all this Bitcoin material with two things in mind that I was looking for. I was looking for anything that had to do with time or the time field in the blogger, just to better understand. The other thing I was looking at is changes that had been made to the block headers in the history of Bitcoin improvement proposals. So it's fun. I like reading through, I read through the white paper. There's eight or nine citations in the Bitcoin white paper. And one or two of them are about time chains. Like, long story short, like, I ended up finding a BIP that had to do with adding a version way of counting. There were three people who had worked on that proposal. One of them just so happened to be Rusty Russell. I decided that the best way to move forward on this was to send Rusty an email laying out my question. Like, hey, I noticed this thing about this black header stuff. And I have a couple questions. Is anyone working on this? Is this something that we need to change? I sent it away. I had just started working at Square when I sent this email to Rusty. I downloaded some of the stuff and I started digging through the Bitcoin source code and found all the places that the end timestamp is in the code base. Interestingly enough, it's stored as um, UNT64, which is big. So that doesn't have the rollover problem. The type of data that has the rollover problem is actually assigned 32-bit integer. It's actually stored as the unsigned 32 integer in the Bitcoin code base. So it actually won't roll over until 2118 or something like that. And most of the places in the Bitcoin code base are already upgraded to the longer format. I didn't hear back from him for months. And then eventually at some point he read his email and got back to me. It was like, let me put you in touch with some people who can help answer this question. He CC'd Peter Willa, who I at the time had no idea who that was. Peter and I exchanged a few emails about different strategies for how to update the timestamp stuff. I'll write some tests and see what I can figure out based on these things we've come up with and get back to you. And the rest of it was like, oh, you seem like you know things about Bitcoin. My team at Blockstream is hiring. Would you like to apply? I wrote Rusty back a really nice email that was like, thank you for thinking 
thinking that I would be eligible for this position, but here are all the reasons that I am not a good fit for this role at your organization. Plus one, hey man, I just started working at Square. And he was like, okay, okay, I hear what you're saying, but if you just interview, then we can figure it out. They were like, we'd like you to come join and work on Lightning with them. So that's basically how I ended up getting hired at Blockstream to work on Sea Lightning because I emailed a random person from a bit I found on the internet. So you got hired at Blockstream and I want to ask this question. How does it feel? It's great. I'm having a blast. Part of getting to work on Sea Lightning means getting to fulfill this long time hacker dream of being able to write C. I'm a definite weirdo when it comes to programming things. I don't think that my opinions are very popular, but I really like C. You got your start at Blockstream and they threw you into the world of of lightning. I want to ask you a couple of questions about that story. It sounds like you really had this desire to bootstrap yourself. You're bootstrapping from being an Android developer to really working on Blockstream, one of the main places where a lot of the development work is done, maybe to the chagrin of some, some people out there. The main question I would ask is, so you're a Blockstream, is there anywhere further up you can go? Can you help Bitcoin any more, any place else? Is there any higher plateau for you? I think the work I'm doing at Blockstream is super fun and exciting. And honestly, I'm really excited about getting the projects I've got on the back burner for the last couple of weeks. I'm going to come back to it after this release we're doing this week. I am incredibly excited about the work that I'm doing for the, the Lightning Protocol at Blockstream. I have a side project that I don't really want to talk about quite yet because I'm superstitious about projects that you talk about publicly not ever getting done. I'm going to not say too much about that, but I think that this project kind of another way that I feel like I'm contributing back to the ecosystem of Bitcoin in a larger sense. Along the same lines, before we move on, do you have any advice or any words for people out there that want to improve Bitcoin, want to improve a Lightning Network or any of the side projects that are related? Do you have any advice for them to maybe how to take the next move or some inspirational words? <laughs> yeah, I think that if you're not already running your own node, you should definitely be running your own node. I think that having that ability to have a working copy of it gives you a good idea of what improvements are to be made. In the process of setting up the node, maybe you'll have ideas about what you'd want to see differently or better. That's something that kind of I think the community could definitely use. If you're a developer and you're looking for ways to get involved with Sea Lightning, you should check out the plugin infrastructure that we have. The thing that's really cool about the plugin infrastructure with Sea Lightning is that it's a really low barrier entry way to add on extra things that you can make your Lightning node do. The plugins give you the this ability to customize and add more things to your node that might be a really fun way to start learning more about how to interop with like a lightning. That's a great segue bring us back around here. So you're working on Sea Lightning at Blockstream. I think this is a very good moment to draw some contrast. You already laid out how Sea Lightning has plugins. Would you describe the approach of Sea Lightning and what Lightning Labs is doing with LND? Do you see the architecture and the approach being very different? I should preface this with admission that I don't follow LND's trajectory as closely as I wish I did. With that in mind, I feel like I'm answering this with incomplete information, which is a very programmer way to approach your question. I don't know everything, but I'll tell you based on what I do know. Lightning Labs is positioning themselves or attempting to position their products as a more out-of-the-box solution. I think they're trying to be an easy plug-and-play option. They're building with a product in mind of what they want to offer to people who want to run Lightning Notes. 
Whereas I think that the Sea Lightning approach aims to be a reference implementation. Rusty Russell started Sea Lightning project and has been really a big contributor to the Lightning spec itself. His whole philosophy on Sea Lightning is that we're meant to be very spec focused. We provide a platform that you can extend and build on top of with plugins. The Sea Lightning architecture is meant to be fairly modular such that you can rewrite certain sections of the application. You can kind of place the HSM module the part of Sea Lightning that deals with signing all the transactions. I believe there's a startup that's working on building physical devices that you would be able to use with your Lightning node. Since they can just kind of rewrite that particular module and the rest of the Sea Lightning node will work with it because the interfaces are really well defined. I touched Sea Lightning in 2019. I unfortunately went back to LND because it, it is a lot easier. When I was just pulling up the help menu, it's formatted very differently than LND. It slowed me down quite a bit. I felt for quote unquote simplicity, I'll just deal with LND on the command line and that's enough torture for now. And I want to go to a meta conversation about Lightning here for a moment. The way that I use Lightning is I have a tip jar or crowdfund thing for the podcast. I'm using a BTC pay server to have my LND node running in Docker. All that's really great. I, I don't have to do a lot of work on my end. I'm not likely to figure out my own plugins in the short term. I'm pretty busy at the moment. Do you see there being much of an advantage for, let's say me in this case, to switch over to see Lightning? Is there any good argument that you can see there? I believe BTC Pay Server lets you swap out what you use. The nice thing about that is if you did decide to switch over to Sea Lightning, you wouldn't have to change much about how your BTC Pay integration works. It's really cool that they did that. I think this falls back to my lack of knowing about the features that LND offers. I can tell you what Sea Lightning offers. I've been working on adding in annotation support to Sea Lightning that will make it such that you can get a printout. I have to build a plugin for it, but if you install the plugin with it, it'll give you this ability to get a CSV of where all your money moves, like an expense report. The idea is that it'll give you more of an accountant view onto how much have you made from invoices, how much have you made from routing fees, what have you paid in chain fees for opening and closing all these different channels. So hopefully we'll be able to give you a lot more kind of detailed cost information around running a node. I don't think it's going to go out in this release. It'll definitely be in the next release. I would definitely say that's a huge challenge, not just for Lightning, but for Bitcoin too. There's probably better tools for Bitcoin, but I feel like it's still hard to integrate my QuickBooks type fiat business setup with Lightning. I keep it in a separate universe and never shall the two meet. Is there any way to really fix that without the legacy fiat people being, oh, we, we love Bitcoin now, let's just put it into all of our products. What's the next step here? How can we make it easier? The that I did on the Sea Lightning, I think is the first step. The goal of the annotations is to provide a personal ledger for your node that records all the coin movements, which is the raw data that you would need. Then you could import that into QuickBooks or wherever you're keeping your information. I think the work I've been doing on Sea Lightning in the last few weeks is the ground level of getting you the information that you want. There's a bit of integration work in terms of how to exactly to get that into QuickBooks. I spent some time speaking with an accountant who works at Black stream when I started working on this project just to get a better 
idea about the Blockstream storefront that people buy things through Lightning. Traditionally, we haven't done a lot of very detailed accounting around that stuff due to the way that our internal books are kept. An interesting thing that came out with that is that one thing that is hard with the accounting software that we were using is that it's really hard to have a secondary currency that's not in US dollars because most of your accounting books ask you to enter in what the US dollar equivalent is. The hard thing with Bitcoin assets is the price changes all the time. So if you go in and you say this Bitcoin is worth $10,000 today and then we wake up tomorrow and it's worth $15,000, your books are no longer right. All this to say, I'm doing what I can to get the Lightning stuff reported out and having it all be in Bitcoin denomination. I think there's still a little bit of work to do in the field around exactly how to account for it in accounting software due to assumptions that they make based on dollar values of things. It sounds like one big giant mess. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a mess. I think it's the kind of problem you have to chip away at one thing at a time. Or maybe fiat will just go away and QuickBooks will be denominated in Bitcoin. Yeah. If everything's in Bitcoin, then I think the accounting's work I've done basically works and we're done. We're ready to go. Keeping with the meta lightning stuff, do you have any ideas of how else lightning could be generally improved or big projects that other people could take on if they have the time, etc.? Gosh, I wish I had a better answer for this. Something that Lightning Labs has been working at, and I'm really excited to see it adopted. They're calling it LSAT protocol. Basically, they're working on payment gateways, tying in Lightning invoice request response with HTTP codes, such that you go to a website and it sends back a response to your browser that's like, hey, in order to access that, you need to pay me. Then your browser would know how to handle these HTTP requests, and it would automatically prompt you. You get a little wallet pop-up that's like, they want XYZ, and you yes or no. The other day I was messing around with some dye that I own. I put it on this website called Compound Finance. Basically, you peg your dye into a contract and then it's lending your dye out and you get paid back interest. So I add some dye in this thing. And then something with a contract happened. It required going to a website and clicking some buttons to upgrade it from dye to sigh. I have MetaMask installed. And every time you need to take an action, it automatically prompts MetaMask to show you a thing like, do you want to spend X gas to X this contract. I'm just like, sure, let's do it. Hopefully this will just make the thing I want to have that happen. The flow of the UI, if you go to the website, you need to get the thing done. This little thing just pops up and is like, do you want to pay? And you're like, yes. I feel like that infrastructure doesn't exist as easily in Lightning. I think that the work that Lightning Labs is doing on getting like the LSAT stuff out is really important in terms of making that more possible in reality. I would agree with that. Would you say that there are any other more appy type projects that you're liking that are just pure made-for-users type uh, lightning uh, projects? I don't know where I spend most of my time, clearly not on the internet, but I haven't really seen the thing that I really want. So there's a lot of news these days because there's a lot of stuff going on in the world and I keep hitting paywalls on publications and I don't want to pay them money. I don't want to sign up for a subscription to read an article. This is the thing I want the internet to do. I want a little pop-up that's like, this is going to cost you like a dollar to read this article. I would be like, sure. Send that invoice, make it a dollar. I'll pay a dollar an article. It's fine. Or however many sats that is. I really want that infrastructure to exist and I really want it to be at a point where it's widespread enough that major news outlets like Washington Post or Wall Street Journal use it. I don't pay for a subscription because I'm a cheapskate. But I would pay per article to read their content. I think that I really want to see us get to the point where the infrastructure is good enough that large companies that have content on the internet can easily integrate it and it's just accessible to everyone because the tools just exist everywhere. I don't know how long it's going to take for us to get there, but I think that's a dream. 
by the time this episode airs, the previous episode will be with Tim, and we actually go over the subject of AWOLs. So anyone listening to this wants to go back and listen to that, you can go ahead and do that. I definitely like the idea of doing that. I've contacted some of the people in the crypto journalism space, and they seem to have a very negative opinion of one-off paywall individual articles versus just charging for an annual subscription. I don't know if the argument is actually sound or not. I'm not on the journalism front lines, so I don't really know what they know on some level. Subscription models are really easy to plan your budget around. So if you're a company or an organization, you want recurring subscription model because it helps you plan how much money you're going to have for the next month you know how many subscriptions you have. I get why they wouldn't be super excited about it. I mean, at least put your toe into the water and see, does it make sense? Can we do that for 10% of our articles and see what happens? I feel like there needs to be more experimentation out there. The tools aren't perfect yet, but I think that they're good enough to at least have some kludgy, hacky solution and have it make you money. It doesn't have to be absolutely perfect. I think part of the problem is that it doesn't feel accessible. It's not something I'm really working on and I don't really know what the solution is. I hope somebody figures that out because I think it'd be great to have more revenue options for journalists. I would agree with that. Let's go ahead and start talking about the specific reason why I think you wanted to jump onto the podcast, and that's what you call Lightning Network Protocol Primitives. Can you explain what that is? Part of doing the work that I needed to do in order to annotate all of the ways that coins can move through a Lightning node meant spending a lot of time getting way more familiar with how money moves through a Lightning node. I just got really excited about a lot of things, particularly about how the HTLC contracts are constructed that was new and interesting to me. I've been working on Lightning for a while now, but most of the work I've been doing has to do with a different part of the protocol. I've been working more on the open channel stuff. This is an opportunity for me to get really more into the weeds on how commitment transactions are exchanged and updated and just the whole way that they're constructed and how penalties work. I was really excited about wanting to just talk about all the stuff I had learned. I think because I know a lot about how the protocol works, it'd be useful for me to know where a good starting place would be what would be interesting for you to hear about, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, please correct me if I'm wrong, but were you at Bitcoin 2019? I was, yeah. I gave a talk on substitution payments. I wanted to make sure before I started asking you about it. So how about you explain that? I actually really like that talk. I think that's the one that stuck in my brain out of all the talks at that conference because I didn't really care about most of the other ones, but I really cared about yours. I believe someone on Twitter brought up an issue with payments, but I believe it's the HTLC. Them being too small small and being below the dust limit. Do you want to kind of explain that for the listeners? Oh yeah, I would love to. This is a talk I gave at 2019 Bitcoin conference. I can't remember exactly what the controversy was. I know my slides are up somewhere. I'm pretty sure there's a recording of it on the internet for anyone who wants to go and look it up. The Lightning Network on a whole allows you to send substitution payments. We call them millisats. There's a thousand millisatoshis in a toshi. I think this is really great because it gives the Lightning Network this ability to scale in the future. One, it lets us have super tiny payments, which is cool because you can make really, really tiny movements of money. The other thing that's really cool is if the Bitcoin price goes way far up, we have the granularity. If $5 worth of Bitcoin becomes 20 millisatoshi, we already have this accounting ability to send really tiny payments over the wire. One of the problems with that is you look at Lightning and you say, oh, okay, so I can send these really tiny payments. But the way that we're sending tiny payments is through Bitcoin transactions. There's two things 
things that don't exactly line up with that. One is that all Bitcoin transactions are denominated in Satoshis. So how does that work? How are militias done around if the way that you write them down and then enforce them on chain is all Satoshis? The other part of it that becomes a little bit more difficult is that there's something called the dust limit on Bitcoin transactions. The dust limit means when you're making a Bitcoin transaction, every transaction can have multiple output. And output is basically like a payment. So one transaction can have a bunch of payments to different parties and each of those payments is the output in the transaction. There's a rule about how much money each of those outputs must be worth. You can't make a Bitcoin transaction with an output payment that is less than a certain number. I believe it's 546. Effectively, when you're making payments through Lightning, every time you make a payment through Lightning, the two nodes that want to send money between each other have a shared balance. If Chaz and I have a channel open and I've got 500 Satoshis on my side and Chaz has 1,000 Satoshis on his side and Chaz, you want to send me 10 Satoshis. Then we need to update our balances so I have 510 and you have 990. The way that we do this is we create a new Bitcoin transaction that has two outputs, one that pays me and one that pays you. I sign the transaction and send you my signature and then you sign the transaction and send the signature over to me so that if anything happens to our channel, we can both get our money out by publishing that transaction that we're holding we have the signature for online and it would show the correct balance for us a very high level overview of how money moves around the lightning network people update their balances by signing new transactions that have different output amount let's say i wanted to send you one millisatoshi i can't update the transaction if you have a thousand and you want to send me one millisatoshi i'm still gonna have 500 there's certain transactions that can't get added to a bitcoin transaction then there becomes a question of, well, we can't put it in an output for a payment. What do we do with it? Or let's say it was something bigger than millisatoshis. Let's say it was 300 satoshis. That's less than our dust limit. What I'm going to do is I'm going to subtract 300 from your balance. So you'll have 700 satoshis. Then I'm not going to add it to my balance because let's say that I haven't gotten the pre-image to claim it. There's an inter intermediate step that I missed here. That's when a payment goes through the the Lightning Network. Let's say that our channel is a route on the network. So neither of us is necessarily going to have the information to be able to claim those funds quite yet, but we need to offer them. You need to offer them to me so that once I get the payment pre-image, that will let me claim the funds from you. We need to put this 300 Satoshi somewhere such that if it goes to chain, I can come and claim it. Just for the sake of an example and so that there's a better contrast between the two cases, let's say that it was 500. So let's say you're gonna give me 500 Satoshis. Typically what you would do is you take 500 away from your balance. So you have 500 now. I still have 500 because that was my original balance. And then that 500 that is the payment that you wanted to send me gets moved to a special output on this transaction that we're gonna sign. It's called the HTLC output. Basically this is a payment that's in progress and we're saving it in this special output place here so that if this transaction goes to chain, there's still the opportunity for it to get fulfilled. It's a little more complicated. The idea is that when you're sending a payment, you're taking the money out of your balance and we're putting it into escrow location, which means neither of us has access to it at the moment. It's not really in either of our channel balances until that payment has either expired or has been claimed by the other party and I can move the money into my balance.
Are you with me so far? Yeah, absolutely. Just to summarize really quick, you could say that payments below the dust limit aren't as trustless as the ones above the dust limit. With payments below the dust limit, it's not that they're trustless. They're still trustless. The only thing that's different is where the money gets put when it's an escrow, as I was calling it. For above dust limit payments, those are recoverable minus some chain fees if it goes to chain. I would be able to get that money when I get the pre-image paid back to me. If the channel fails and we have to publish our commitment transaction to chain, I will be able to get a portion of that money back minus fees. Going to chain on accident is expensive. However, for payments that are beneath the dust limit, let's say 300 Satoshis, the money would come out of your balance. And instead of going into my balance, we put it into that transaction's fees. So the fees for that transaction get bigger. What this means is that if it goes to chain, that money is paid to the miner. And there's a good reason for that. The total amount of fees that you would need to pay to get that back would basically get, get eaten up by fees anyway. It's not like you're necessarily losing money you wouldn't have. I mean, you're definitely losing money because you went to chain. But it's cool though, because it's not trustless. It's not like you just gave me the money and I don't have any proof for it. If you put it in the fees and the miner does well if you end up having to fail that channel and no one ends up getting the money, that payment will be completable on chain. I think it's fair to say that there's some payments that aren't completable on chain, and those are the sub-dust limit ones. I would say that they're not necessarily any more risky than other payments because you still have to pay chain fees for the other payments if you end up on chain. That makes a lot of sense. Do you think that touched on any of those primitives or did you want to keep going into that a little bit more? I think we touched a lot of stuff. I think that was actually a really good way to approach that. The thing that I found was really interesting when I was going through looking at how HTLCs work these last few weeks, the way that Lightning works, there's two parties in a channel. Basically what a channel is, a shared pool of money that you each have agreed how much each of you own of the shared pool. But over time, you can change your mind about who owns how much of that money. As you send payments back and forth, you update how much each person owns of it. And then at some point, you know, you close the channel and you both get that amount of money out. You keep track of what the current balance is with a signed Bitcoin transaction. If for some reason your channel partner goes away or disappears, it's a guarantee that you're able to get your current balance out of the channel in order to move money around, two peers are sending each other new signatures for new transactions. Each transaction updates what the balance is of each of the parties. One thing that I think is cool and makes Lightning incredibly complicated in my mind, at least the current iteration, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think that the L2 proposal will change how complicated it is and make it less complicated. The world that we're in right now with how channels are constructed, the transactions that each party holds in the channel are different. I sign a transaction and send it to you as your update, and then you sign a transaction and send me the signature for that transaction. These both have the same balance outputs. So if either of us drop to chain, both of us get the right amount of money out. And that way they look exactly identical. But there's a really slight difference in the conditions that are placed on those outputs. The transaction that you're holding, the one that I give you my signature for, has a timeout limit on it such that you can only get your Satoshi back after a certain amount of time has passed. Whereas I can get mine immediately. So if you decide to go to chain on the channel and publish your commitment transaction, this is usually called a unilateral because you as a single party of the two in the party have decided to go to chain without my cooperation. And if it's a penalty, you have to wait 
I'm going to say it's like 10 blocks. It might be something different than that. Before you're able to claim your Satoshi output back to you. Whereas the transaction that I have is a mirror image. If I were to publish my commitment transaction, you would be in my commitment transaction that I have. You can get your Satoshi immediately, but I have to wait. It's because balance thing, it penalizes whoever goes to chain with a time penalty. The reason for that is if you accidentally publish an old state version where you had all the money and I didn't have any, that time delay gives me time to go in and steal all the money from it for myself because that's how lightning channels work right now. I think it's cool that they've got this mirror image to them. That's all just a security thing. I think that moving to L2 will get rid of all of that complexity. You no longer have this idea of revocation or needing to wait to make sure that the other party didn't publish the wrong thing and it's going to get all their money stolen. L2 is a roll forward model where instead of penalizing, you just publish a new version that is more correct. I think that was a good explanation of the basics of how penalty transactions work and the benefit of L2. I'm definitely looking forward to L2 at some point because I think the whole penalty thing is less than ideal if someone makes a mistake, if someone has their own server and it saves at the wrong time, they bring it back up after a transaction had already gone through, they try to use the old channel state, whoops, all their money is gone. You could try to go contact that other person and try to get it back. Like, hey, it was a mistake. Depending on how close you are with the other side of your channel, it may not be a thing that happens at all. People might not care. might be like, hey, that's my free money. Thanks. I want to bring us closer to the end here. Maybe talk about a couple personal things here at the end, if, if you don't mind. Before we get to that, I'd like to do a plug for the release that we're doing. It's probably going to roll out next week, but the release candidate should be out by the end of this week for the next update of Sea Lightning. It's mostly going to be a performance improvement and bug fix stuff. There's a couple of experimental features that we're really excited about that will most likely be coming out. I think we're going to have a plugin for KeySend, which is something that Lightning Labs introduced, but now Sea Lightning will support receiving them. Rusty has been working with Bastion Tentierney and I hope I got his last name right, from async with blinded paths. So this is going to allow for better anonymity when you pay invoices eventually. I think that the initial experimental implementation of them will be in the release candidate this time. So if that's something you're interested in checking out, you should check out our 0.8.2 release candidate when it drops in a few days. Awesome. Just to throw it out there, Rusty Russell's mm -hmm. uh, talk from the Lightning Conference last year gives a lot to look forward to over the next period of time. I'm not going to set a, a time period because mm -hmm. I know it's going to be two weeks weeks, TM, the improving invoices, recurring payments, being able to have a Patreon directly on the Lightning Network type thing are things that I'm interested in. I feel like I have a very hard time monetizing the podcast. I, I have a sponsor now, but that's not my ideal. My ideal is to get the individuals actually enjoying my content to pay me and have that be an easy thing for them and not have to worry about fiat. I want to uh, shift gears here a little bit towards the end. I just want to ask, besides your tech-oriented stuff, I see that you also do writing on the slide there. Do you want to tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, gosh, I have a bunch of writing projects. I have a, a newsletter that's supposed to be weekly, but it's short fiction. There's small updates and kind of snapshots. The newsletter is called Future Sight. It's a contemporary speculative fiction, I think is what the cool kids say these days about a group of people. There's AI going on. It's just look at what happens. Like if we roll forward five years with the tech we have now, what are the plot lines that are happening at personal and national level? 
I'm really excited about it. I thought I was going to do it as a bunch of independent short stories, but I got this cool idea for a big story arc. I'm slowly working through a serialized thing with a bunch of different characters. I was going to do it every week and end by the end of the year, but I'm very behind. So we'll see how that goes. I'm excited about it. I also have a blog about tech stuff called Basic Bitch Software that I write about blockchain-y things on sometimes. I haven't updated there in a while. The last thing I wanted to talk about really fast is the most talked about topic for the last two months, the favorite topic that everyone has. I wanted to get a snapshot. How has your life changed because of the coroni? Oh, the virus thing. So let's real talk. I work for Blockstream. Blockstream is a very remote company. I have been working from home for a year and a half now. Personally, I think that I'm very privileged. My life has not changed that much other than the fact that you get sick and you're like, oh crap, is this it? Is this the thing? Is this over? I actually got sick a few weeks ago. I have no idea if it was the thing or not. I've talked to a few friends who had similar symptoms in different parts of the country and I'm like, yeah, seems like I probably had a very, very, very mild case of the thing that's going around, but we'll never know because testing, who does that? No one does that. I think on a personal level, I've been lucky. It really hasn't impacted me too far. I live in Texas and I know that it's definitely going around the city here. I think we're really struggling with the testing stuff. I don't know, man. I don't know what's going to happen. I hear it's still hard to get toilet paper in the stores, which surprises me. I thought that would be solved by now. That's so weird. I haven't bought toilet paper in 2020 yet. I already had toilet paper. I don't I don't get these people a great article on it a few days ago. It was the best rational explanation I've seen for why there's still no toilet paper left in the stores. The reason is that during the day, most people usually do their business out in the world. The supply market for toilet paper is actually fairly distinctly split between the commercial and residential production system. So everyone being at home has overwhelmed the residential supply and no one is buying commercial supply. The distribution networks and production networks are so incredibly different that you can't necessarily just take all the commercial paper and try to start selling it. I mean, the rolls are enormous. You buy a big roll of toilet paper, it's not like you can put it on your little roll at home, you know? There's a lot of infrastructure problems here with getting commercial paper into people's houses. I thought that was a really good explanation for why it's still not in the stores. Literally, the demand has gone up so much they can't keep up with it. Wow. I didn't even consider that possibility, but that does seem pretty plausible. I know, right? It's crazy. I think given that point, I'm going to go ahead and close out the show. Was there anything else that you wanted to share with the listeners before we go on how to find you on Twitter and, and all that good stuff? Oh yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nifty Nye. That's N-I-F-T-Y-N-E-I. Also, I'm on Twitch. Sometimes I'll stream my Sea Lightning Twitch development. If you subscribe to me or if you follow me on Twitter, it usually sends out notifications when I start. But if you want to follow me on Twitch, I'm also at twitch.tv. It's just fun. We have a good time. Perfect. I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast, Lisa. Thanks, Chaz. Boom. That was the 28th episode of the Lightning Junkies podcast. Did you learn anything on this episode? I definitely think I did. It was very engaging, and it was very interesting to get Lisa on the podcast. Did you like how technical this episode was? Do you want things to be explained more? Please let me know. It would allow me to make these podcasts more useful for more people. As previously stated in the intro to the podcast, I have a new support page, lightningjunkies.net forward slash support. 
I definitely want to add new ways of supporting the podcast on there in the weeks and months ahead, including the idea of a premium version of the podcast that doesn't have any advertisements, doesn't have any pointless me talking in the uh, intro, no pointless stuff at the end, that you'll just get the Prime episode, along with other future planned video content and things like this. So please stay tuned. For now, I'll see you on the Lightning Network.